Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick heads up about last week. I just wanted to make sure you and your podcatcher noticed that we posted two programs last week, a normal episode featuring artists Tammy Wynn and Jamie Holmes, and a special episode featuring our 2012 and 2016 conversations with the late Robert Irwin, and also two conversations with curators who worked with Irwin. Michael Opping, who first worked with Irwin in the 1970s, and with Evelyn Hankins, who organized Irwin's last major museum exhibition in 2016. On to this week's show, featuring curator Michelle White and artist Kenneth Tam. With Megan Holly Whitko, White is the co-curator of Chrissa and New York, a survey of work the Greek-born Chrissa made while living in New York from the late 1950s to the early 1970s. It's at the Manil Collection in Houston through March 10th, 2024. During the years featured in the exhibition, Chrissa used neon and elements of commercial signage to bridge ideas rooted in the pop, conceptual, and minimalist movements. It's the first major survey of Chrissa's work in the United States, yikes, in more than 50 years. The excellent exhibition catalog was co-published by the Manil and the Dia Art Foundation, with which the Manil co-organized the show. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about 49 bucks. On the second segment, Kenneth Tam. But first, Michelle White. After the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, This year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico. Experience the artistic connections and social justice movements that link Puerto Rico with Chicago via an intergenerational group of artists alongside rich archival material that traces the relationships between art, politics, place, and identity. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. And we're back. Michelle White, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me again. I have read more hundreds of exhibition catalogs than I can count, and I don't think I've ever read one that started in Times Square, which is a place that New Yorkers love to hate and that everyone else seems however inexplicably attracted to. So why do you begin your Chris's story in Times Square? 
well, who doesn't want to start a story in Times Square? <laughs> oh, I can think well, of some people. <laughs> Times Square is such an important space for the progression of Krista's work. Krista was an Athens-born artist, and she studied art in Paris. She studied art in San Francisco and made her way to the city around 1955 and wrote extensively spoke extensively about how her first encounter with Times Square and the cacophony of lights and letters was so impactful to her as an artist. And from that point, she basically said that she wanted to create work that captures and even transcends the feeling and excitement and experience of being in that place. Let's stay in Times Square for a moment, because if it was important enough for you to start your essay there, we should too. So when does Krissa begin using light? And she used all kinds of light in her work, neon, obviously. But I, when I've seen her work over the years, I've often thought of her use of reflective materials as being maybe not a light source, but a light near source. So when does she begin using light in her work and why? In Chris's work, in the period that this exhibition looks at, which is mid-1950s through about 1970, she's using both artificial light, but she's also incredibly interested in the potential of natural light. And that's really how we begin the exhibition, is by looking at her cycladic books. And these are some of the earliest works where she's thinking about how sunlight passing daylight can activate a surface of a work. The cycladic books date to the kind of mid to late 50s, and they're important for lots of reasons in Chris's oeuvre, I, I think in terms of a repetition of, of, of form and making, which we may come back to a little bit later. But how is it that light moves across them, and why do you consider them ways in which she plays with light? So Krista first started making the cyclotic books with plaster and it was kind of this serendipitous encounter with these materials that she left plaster as she described it, setting at the bottom of a cardboard box. And when she removed that plaster, she was captivated by the perpendicular lines that formed in the plaster from the seams of the cardboard and displayed them as books, flat on a raised surface sometimes and talked about how she was interested in this idea of, of capturing light from the world around us, from windows, from passing shadows, et cetera, and how light could then inscribe the blank surfaces of these book-like forms. And as a Greek artist, she also, you know, very brilliantly connected the formal aspects of the books to cycladic figures. So the ancient sculptures of female figures, most often carved in marble. I think we'll come back to in a bit about more about how, how she made them, because I think of them in ways related to other works. But let's talk a little bit more about Times Square while we're there. There is a gigantic work in the show called The Gates of Times Square. It's got neon and stainless steel and plexi, and it couldn't be any more Baroque in comparison to the Cycladic books. How is it and why is it that Carissa is making 
this thing, which is now at the Albright Knox, at almost the same time, she's doing enormously more subtle work. When she arrives at Times Square, I mean, something she talked about is the light condition. So the way neon can light up the night sky. Or even we can think about the conditions of neon in daylight, which she was deeply aware of. So if we think about her work, too, as always capturing atmospheric effects, either through natural or artificial mechanisms, the work really comes together, even though it may look quite different. Is that why she puts neon in black plexi boxes in works like Five Variations on the Ampersand? I mean, where it's a semi-transparent black plexi box, so you can see some of the guts, but it's not, but it's also reflective enough that it appears you're looking at more than one thing at once. Precisely. So in her studies for the Gates to Times Square, she enclosed fragments of these neon forms that we find in the large-scale sculpture and encase them in a plexiglass bonnet. But the bonnet is tinted gray, not black. And when the light shines through, there's a very specific and interesting quality uh, that she captures. And for the artist, that's precisely what she was looking at. She was looking at how you know, light, artificial light in dark situations, like in an urban center like Times Square, the light captured the the particles in the air. Something I write about in my essay for this book is how that particular quality, how scientists call that sky glow, right? So she she was interested in how you experience the city, not just the forms you see, the letters you see, but the air itself, and was very specific with that particular tint of the plaques and of the plexi bonnet for some of her neon works. You totally convinced me in in the essay on all of the Times Square stuff, but because I'm a giant art history nerd, I'm also curious about what you think she was looking at in and around New York at this time that may have informed the work. I know I know a little later on we're going to talk about how her work was often considered in the context of men, men, and more men. And I think that we're finally getting past some of that. And so who who in these Times Square and Neon works do you think she might be working through? I mean, that is such a great question for in consider in considering Krissa and her place within art history. And I think it's important to note here that I've worked with so many artists living past and often well-known artists have an existing archive that we use when we're conceiving of an exhibition, when we're putting together chronologies, when we're thinking about what works of art to show. Krissa is very different. Her archives are incredibly incomplete. There is so much information we still do not know about Krissa's life, about who she was reading, what artist she was talking to. And we thought a lot about this as we were conceiving this show. And I did this show with my co-curator, Megan Holly Whitco at DIA. And it's one of those situations where we wanted to be incredibly transparent in our approach that we still know quite little about Krissa. And we're hoping this exhibition and we're hoping this publication can spark new lines of inquiry and new research. And 
what you bring up is just one of many missing pieces of the puzzle. I found myself thinking about Louise Nevelson a lot. Nevelson isn't in your essay. She is in Tina Rivers Ryan's essay in the volume. The timelines are pretty close. Absolutely. There's so much in common. And especially, you know, what's so interesting about Chris's career is when she came to New York, she started exhibiting her work as soon as 1960. And between 1960 and 1963, she's shown in major exhibitions, her works presented at MoMA, it's presented at the Whitney. She has a solo exhibition at the Guggenheim. By 1963, she's considered one of the most well-known artists. She's on these lists of like best American artists working now in time and life. And she's profiled in these publication. So she becomes so well known in her time that many scholars have even looked at Chris's influence on work that was developing out of the time. When she first started using the letter forms, the first examples that we know of come from 1956. This is the first year that Jasper Johns makes his works with the alphabet, specifically gray alphabets from 1956 in the Manila collection. And she was immediately in the press compared to Jasper Johns, quite naturally. And we do know that Carissa was very adamant that what she was doing was quite different, but we still just don't know enough about her circle and and her, her the, the group of artists she may have been talking to. We do know, of course, that Krissa had a close relationship to Agnes Martin in the late 1950s and spent significant time at the Coenty Slip neighborhood in Manhattan. So that also could be a possible realm for further exploration. So around these questions or issues, there's a whole lot of interesting work in the catalog. So there's a really good essay here by Jonathan Katz who writes that the gates of Times Square, the Albright-Knox work we mentioned a moment ago, quote, does to language what Marcel Duchamp's three standard stoppages does to measurement. It randomizes something whose sole purpose was to defeat the random, thereby vanquishing its raison d'etre. I have had a lot of lot of fun thinking about that, but maybe the most valuable thing within that observation is that maybe it gets us out of, or, or maybe gets critics out of, thinking of Chris's use of forms like ampersands, um, you know, get, getting that away from John's. Yeah, and getting it away from pop art. Yeah. Well, they're yeah, not I don't, yeah. related. What Chris is doing so differently than artists like Jasper John is she's basically not being clear, right? Like she's using light and she's using these formal mechanisms, many deeply inspired by her love of abstract expressionism to take these everyday signs of communications, of text, of letters, of sources pulled from newspapers and kind of doing the opposite of what her, you know, future pop peers would have been doing and mixing it up and creating what in some situations in works of art is these infuriating situations where you're trying to read these letters and they're, you know, pulled into this messy cacophony of forms and letters that you can't even make out individual letters from the alphabet. And 
as an art historian, I think this is so interesting that she essentially sort of skips over pop art beginning in the late 1950s and anticipates what we might think of as this kind of proto-postmodernism of questioning the validity and authority of language itself, which is why her work, it's hard to place her work within a neat story. Maybe one of the benefits of this moment in contemporary art where we have finally stopped categorizing or slotting artists into isms is that it allows us to do the same with the past. Your phrase in your catalog essay on, on, on some of what you just described is that Carissa, quote, co-ops symbols and transforms them into aesthetic abstractions. And, and I think in, in your locution, you're pointing to that once she co-ops them, she's not interested in what they were. Whereas I think John's, for example, stays interested, even if only formally sometimes. So in terms of this idea of co-opting symbols and transforming them into aesthetic abstractions, in your catalog essay, you wrote about how Carissa did that with light, with neon. Are there works in the show where she does that with other materials too? Well, light plays a big role. So light becomes almost like, you know, I, I describe it as, you know, akin to a, a, a gesture of paint that she's using it as this malleable medium that can, you know, take a hard line of a fragment of a metal sign from Times Square and turn it into a formal composition Within her work, I mean, she does this formally. Another way she does this, particularly within a group of work called the letterboxes, is she takes these letter forms, sometimes found, sometimes that she constructs, uh, and she pushes them together. And I, for lack of a more sophisticated way of saying this, it's like alphabet soup, right? Where you're kind of, as a viewer, tasked with finding meaning, finding words, and it just sort of falls apart as soon as you start looking. So she, she, she does this quite well with her arrangement of letters. She'll also, in many cases, take these three-dimensional letter forms and turn them on their side. So when you approach the work, you're looking at the side of the letters. So you kind of have to move your body back and forth to attempt to figure out what those, what letters those forms are related to. Or to decide if the letters don't matter. Exactly. And I think in this show, as you move through, go through this experience of sort of letting go of this, you know, natural wanting to make meaning from these symbols. And I think that's precisely what Krissa was attempting to do. You know, when we think about her, going back to her initial encounter with Times Square, you know, her first language is not the English language. And you can imagine being in an environment like Times Square and not seeing the letters as carriers of meanings, but as as a kind of formal cacophony. And she want, that's what she was trying to capture. So in other pieces, too, she's going to these sign graveyards, so cast off signs from urban spaces. And she's taking those fragments and essentially collaging them on top of each other. So in some of the works, you have this very kind of dense compositions of fragments of found letters that are absolutely beautiful and meaningless in the right way. There's a great picture in the chronology in the catalog of her literally climbing through a sign graveyard somewhere outside New York, you know, you know, like walking up signs, like topographically piled up signs. It's quite a hoot. One of those letterboxes that I haven't been able to stop thinking about is called Bach. 
It's from 1956. And it is a an aesthetic abstraction, to borrow a phrase, that is almost exactly where Saul Lewitt will end up a generation later. And that got me thinking that I suspect that there's a lot here. You know, I, I think that art historians, especially male art historians, often assume that like kind of all of this stuff descends from John's. But when I look at a work like that, I think that we probably have only just begun to understand how artists were mining Krista. Wait, and this is, I think, an exciting avenue of the research that's developing and hopefully will become even stronger out of this show. Again, we know Krista was shown extensively in the early 1960s. And we're just beginning to get some really interesting scholarship out of this. And I want to point to my colleague, Blake Gopnik, who's done some really interesting work about the influence of Krista on Andy Warhol in the early 1960s. Speaking of works in which Krista is using letters less as recognizable things and more as compositional devices and even topography. The bronze tablets from 1956, 57, there are two of them in the show. One of them is enormous. One of them is, you know, almost six, almost five feet tall. Why is she making tablets and are they related to her interest in the cycladic book form? The tablets are an incredible part of the show. I love them. Uh, because because they reference sort of two sides of her practice. One, they hearken back to Krista's roots in Athens and her clear interest in looking at forms of art production in the ancient world. So much like the Cycladic books, she was also looking at document relief forms. So the way language within a public environment would have been set forth for others to read, right? This was the the public form of communication was carving into the stone and allowing the recesses of the carvings create the letters. The letters are created in the shadows. So she was thinking about that form. But at the time, in the late 1950s, she's working in Times Square she also starts to source materials from the newspaper, specifically the New York Times, which was then lo- located, of course, at one Times Square. And she started looking uh, specifically at the lino plates, the printing plates that would have been used to create the newspapers and use that to create her paintings where she would use these big stamp-like forms. And by, by- paintings, you mean oil on canvas, I should say. This isn't a Correct. Oil on yeah. canvas. So she would take these cast off forms of blocks of letters and text and metal blocks of letter and letters and text and press them against the surface like a stamp. So as she's creating these paintings with the stamps, she's also creating these tablets that you were talking about, these big bronze tablets that reference both the ancient source, but also the contemporary source of communication, which is the newspaper format. There's something that underlies a huge amount of the work we're talking about, and that is an evident interest in what would probably beginning in the early 1960s be called seriality. And I think one of the ways contemporary art history is changing before our eyes, God, I hope, is that we're understanding that seriality wasn't an interest brought forward by the big male minimalists, minimalists, but that artists like Ruth Asawa at Black Mountain College and here Krissa are 
I think I would say instigating what will become seriality. I mean, I have, I, I, I guess I'll have maybe a, a specific follow up or two. But how do you, how and why do you think Carissa becomes interested in seriality in her work? Because it seems to me, for example, that the cycladic books are a process repeated: plaster, cardboard box, separated work, done again, done again, done again, done again. Absolutely, seriality is an important part of her practice, and you see that in the cycladic books. And we wanted to emphasize that in the exhibition by showing quite a few cycladic books. And we show them in a big row where you can kind of move through and look at the slight variations of the forms of the books pulled from the bottom of cardboard box to understand what she was interested in and to understand too how she's thinking quite nuanced in a quite nuanced way about how light can play with the surface differently depending on you know the slight variations of surface texture of the way the the raised surface works differently in each object but of course seriality is kind of innate to language right to letters and to these sort of sequences of text forms letters that she's playing with and experimenting with quite extensively. I mean, it's how we read the urban environment. If you kind of blur your eyes and don't read the words, but look at the forms, uh, we're surrounded by seriality. And it's something she was pulling out of her new American urban environment. Before we started taping, you were telling me about how your understanding of how Carissa made work in these years is that there was a lot going on at once, that, that we shouldn't read linear progression into the oeuvre. So I'm trying not to do that. But right about the time she's making these cycladic books, she's making these cast aluminum sculptures that are wall-mounted sculptures they read as paintings that are flat and then have raised forms on them. How might we consider those in the context of the cycladic books on one hand and these works she will make in a few years that involve printing and the repetition of characters. They work like the cyclotic books because they rely on natural light to activate the surface, but almost in a more pronounced way. The projections are a series that she made using these forms, and they're almost like exaggerated golf tees or kind of holders for empty light bulbs or peg-like forms, right, that protrude off the surface. They're arranged in different forms, big letters, in homage to Times Square, which is her very first uh, direct reference to Times Square in her work. It's a giant arrow. So she's looking at the, the ground. She's looking at these directional signs that would have been painted on the asphalt, elevating it and creating a giant work around a giant arrow in Times Square. And with these peg-like forms, which form the arrows, form the big block letters, each peg almost works like a sundial, right? So depending on the position of the sun, how the light is falling, how the sunlight kind of activates the surface, again, you have these forms that also dance and move. And in some cases, if we go back to this idea of playing with this notion of clarity, it kind of manipulates the sign itself. 
And that leads, you know, as she's looking at these big arrow forms, right, from the street, these big blocky letters, within the projection, we we find what the, the kernels of what will become the gates to Times Square, right? These forms, symbols, letters that create the landscape of this wildly famous intersection that comes uh, comes into play into the gates to Times Square, which she first started making in 1964. These projection pieces are all casts or casted, if that's a word. It's a variety. So oh, it some is. of the pegs are painted wood. Uh, we are installing the show right now as I'm talking to you. And we have our object conservators on the floor. There's bronze. We think there's a type of soft metal, either a type of zinc, lead, and aluminum. So she's working in all different types of materials to make these. So all of these cast or sort of cast <laughs> works are, you know, kind of within the New York Times crossword color list, you know, beige, ecru, basically colorless colors. And the neons that are in the show are shouty, loud, bursty, bright, Times Square colorful. Has working on this mix of work, all made within about a 10, 12 year period, how how is working on this got you thinking about Krissa and Palette? Because good Lord, there's difference. There's such a huge difference. <laughs> we go from a Grisai Palette to, yeah, a wild show. And because of the technicalities of installing neon and the fragility of so many of the neon works, we are keeping in the Manil iteration of the show, the projection separate from the neon. So we can really activate the architecture of our Renzo piano building and bring in the light and have that passing changing light impact the kind of incredible dancing surfaces of the projections while allowing the neons to have their space to not only shout with their loud colors, but in many examples we have on view, Chris is also working with sequencers or timers. So the neon is both flashing and it's turning on and off in the exhibition and in, in various works. And this would correspond to how signs work in Times Square, right? They flash, they move, they light up in consecutive patterns and behaviors. And she was really interested in that. And I want to say, too, what's so important about Chris's work and putting her within this kind of understanding of an avant-garde after mid-century is that she's one of the first artists to be working with industrial fabricators. So she's making this work alongside the craftsmen that would have been making the signs for Times Square. And this is really... By, by alongside, you mean like physically alongside? Physically alongside. So she was in conversation. She was using their facilities. She was navigating incredibly masculine world craftsmanship at the time to create this work. She could not create what she did alone. She was working with metal fabricators, neon vendors, and professional sign makers to not only salvage the material, but help construct the work. And it's not, it's, you know, of course, it's something we 
we don't think much about today that an artist would be working with a professional or working with a craftsperson involved in industrial trade, but she was incredibly ahead of her time in doing this. And so this idea of the light sequencing or, or the animators to the neon that directly comes out of her close understanding and study of the signage of Times Square. Prudence Pfeiffer on the podcast a few weeks ago when talking about her book, The Slip, talked about how it must have been important for all of the artists who worked at Coenty's Slip, Krista was one of them, to have daily encounters with laborers, people who did the stuff of building the infrastructure of urbanity, having just day-to-day access to them, even when they were like having lunch on a bench. And that's probably a really good example of that. One more thing on color, though. Do you think Krista was interested in color, either in terms of individual colors, be it beige or a neon color, or comma, in the colors she used together as having to work together in a certain way? Of course. She was so intentional behind all of the formal decisions she was making, from the color of the tinting of the plexiglass box to her decisions about the hues of her neon tubes. And we know that based on understanding how she was so thoughtful about the sequencing of particular neon works. Now, in terms of your question around the kind of gray palette, the extensive work with white, that palette is most often reserved for the works that she intended to interact with natural light conditions. And as I understand it, or have come to understand it, the blankness of the surface without color provided Krissa a way for her to foreground the possibilities of sunlight and light, the light conditions around the work of art. Excellent. Michelle White, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb Across America 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. 50 years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton 
staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024, see Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Kenneth Tam. The Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is exhibiting Matrix 281, Kenneth Tam, The Founding of the World, through November 26th. The exhibition presents The Founding of the World, a video and sculptural installation in which Tam explores the history and practices of fraternities as a way of probing the dynamics of male intimacy and ritualized violence. The presentation was curated by Victoria Sung. Tam's work is also included in Cowboy at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver through February 18th. Cowboy features the work of 27 artists who are shifting cowboy mythology. It was curated by Nora Burnett Abrams and Miranda Lash. At the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford University, see Kenneth Tam All of M. All of M is Tam's restaging of the high school prom as a way of exploring how men perform their identities in spaces of social ritual. It's up through November 11th. Kenneth Tam, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, it's good to be here. Your work examines how masculinity is constructed and performed. There are like literally 27 single artist presentations or exhibitions right now in which your various addresses of masculinity are on view across the United States. When did you begin or when are you aware of having begun to pay attention to masculinity as a social construct? Perhaps as early as when I was in, in, in high school understanding a certain kind of performative nature with my peers and the peer groups that I was finding myself in, I certainly wouldn't have called it, you know, masculinity or, or the performance as such back then, but it was just more about looking at behaviors and just being really curious about why my friends did the things that they did <laughs> around each other, let's say, and the ways in which those behaviors was also a way of negotiating questions about identity not just tied to gender identity, but also kind of racialized identity. I grew up in, in New York and in parts of, of parts of Queens where uh, there were a lot of Asian, Asian diasporic immigrant families. And so most of my friends, just because there were so many of us, were, were tended to be Asian, Asian American. And certainly the, the high school that I went to was 50%, then 50% Asian American. It's, it's even more now. It's probably three quarters public, New York City public high school. And I was always someone that was slightly uncomfortable being in, in, in a group, let's say, more specifically associating with a particular group or inhabiting, let's say, like a, a group identity. So I would always find myself sort of drifting between groups, let's say, within the sort of the social hierarchy of, of my high school. Yeah, I was always just sort of fascinated, horrified, <laughs> curious about how my, my friends would, would act around each other, let's say, and the things that they would do. And, you know, certainly a lot of that is just because you're a teenager and you do silly things and it's fine. It was also, I think, a byproduct of being, you know, the, the children of, of immigrants, let's say, and having to perhaps invent or reproduce certain kinds of behaviors 
because of that. And, and I, I was just always very curious about that. So you're done with high school, you're going to college, you're becoming an adult, you're becoming an artist. Was there a teacher or a professor or an artist or a novelist, fill in the blank, that got you thinking, oh, I have this, I, I, I've been conscious of masculinity for all these years, maybe it would be a good subject of my work. So yeah, I don't, I think that happened further into the future. So I went to the college and that was not something that I was thinking about as as an undergrad. There was, there was a lot happening and a lot of learning and a lot of just figuring out how I wanted to to be not even an artist, but just someone that made art, let's say. I think there was a distinction between those two things. And I wasn't ready, you know, I certainly wasn't ready to, to give myself that title yet. I don't think it was until I went to grad school that these kinds of themes started to appear in my work more and working with, with someone like Bruce Hanley, who's a, a writer, uh, educator, critic, really started to engage me in those conversations and not even just saying, oh, your work is about masculinity. I don't think that word even necessarily came up in any of our conversations, but more about thinking about the body and performance, the ways in which artists have have sort of engaged with those ideas, but also in non-art ways, let's say. Yeah, I think he was someone that was really pivotal in my development as an artist. You're showing a recent work at Berkeley called The Founding of the World. It's a film installation of scenes that present and interrogate Asian American fraternities and their practices. First off, what are Asian American fraternities? Are we talking about college organizations, institutions that go beyond college? So Asian American fraternities are part of the, the larger Greek system that is very popular within certain colleges and, and universities in this country, definitely not all of them. But these are groups of individuals that participate in Greek life, let's say, fraternities and sororities within groups that are you know, specifically for self-identifying Asian, Asian American students. There's a wide range of, of these organizations. Some are quite broad and generic, not generic, but just broad in its membership. So you you can have non-Asian individuals of Asian descent in these groups. That's not a big deal at all. And other times you can have very, very specific groups that are just built around uh, very specific ethnicities. So you have, let's, I've, I've, in my research, I've encountered South Asian specific fraternities and sororities in certain schools. But basically they do many of the same things that your sort of average white Greek organization engages in, but with the big difference being that the Asian American fraternities and sororities have some focus on their shared cultural background. And, and that can mean a, a lot of different things, as I've discovered in my research. The founding of the world addresses, I don't know, one ritual or, or a series of rituals, or, or, or maybe more generally the way Asian American fraternities construct and perform rituals. What are the kinds of rituals you're addressing in the founding of the world? And then, and then we'll talk in a moment about how you do that. Yeah. So in, in my research, I found that some, and, and certainly not all of, of these fraternities and also sororities in their pledging process, which is basically when someone who wants to join or pledge a membership has to go through some kind of process, both public and private, to become a full member. One of the uh, the things that they engage in is a, a ritual or ceremony called the probate, 
which is basically a very public performance that marks the kind of the final act, let's say, before Pledge becomes a full member. And it's both a kind of a test and a celebration that, again, happens in uh, happens for the public in front of friends and, and family. And it's a very theatricalized performance that often involves dance, coordinated, synchronized movement between the, uh, the, the, the pledges, lots of recitation and chanting of histories about the organization they're attempting to join. And they often also involve use of very symbolic items like masks and costuming, again, to kind of mark this sort of shift between non-member and, and full member. Sometimes they even adopt names for themselves to kind of, again, highlight this transformation of their identity from the individual to the group. And the thing to point out, too, is that these probates are, are by no means specific to Asian American fraternities. Actually, they're mostly derived from an older set of practices that came from African-American Greek life, which is even a larger history that I only sort of like dip my toe into to kind of understand more about how Asian-American groups were coming up with their own rituals and practices. So it's important to understand that there's this, this, a, a much larger group of cultural practices that really originated with Black fraternities and sororities in this country. There are a couple elements of the founding of the world that make it like literally hard to turn away from. I mean, once you kind of start watching it, you're like, you don't dare look away. There's so much sometimes weirdness that, that you, you, you just get absorbed by it. One of the things that really jumps out, one of the things that's constant across the work is your use of color. A lot of your work uses saturated, I don't want to say artificial, but kind of artificially effusive color. And in the founding of the world, each scene, if you will, has a, a dominant suffusing color, red, green, blue. How do you use color across the founding of the world? And why did you choose those particular colors? That's a that's a really interesting question. So on the on the most kind of literal level, some of the colors that I chose, uh, specifically the sort of the black and red combination that you see some of the performers wearing, is derived from a one specific fraternity that I researched heavily and was really influential for for this video. Really, the whole the whole kind of many of the projects that are involved with this research, not just this video. And they're a fraternity called Pi Delta Psi, and they're significant because it was really through this one group that uh, my interest in this whole subject matter began. They were the fraternity that was the subject of a New York Times Magazine article written by Jay Caspian King about the murder, I guess the unintentional murder of one of, of, a, of a pledge by other groups of, of the fraternity he was pledging into. I think this happened in 2013. This is a really kind of tragic story that Kang surfaced and brought to light. And really, my, my introduction to this world, I really had no familiarity with it at all. And so the founding of the world, in part, derives some of its, from some of its visual language from the way this particular fraternity, even though I don't cite this really in the, in the video, in the way that they sort of promote themselves through those colors and the way that their identity, you know, their marketing is, is through those particular visual elements. So that's that's one reason why the video looks the way it does. 
other colors, I guess, are, are more, um, as you say, effusive and are meant to kind of represent a, perhaps an, an emotional state than in, more, than, more so than anything else. So, for example, there's a whole series of shots with a, a, a dancer who kind of exists in this kind of somewhat floaty, abstract space. And he's always lit with these very strong colors, red, green, and blue. And those are not tied to any particular fraternity. But again, it was just more try to suggest a kind of emotional state. But really, I think overall, what you're picking up on through color is a way I'm trying to create like a very heightened world that certainly references things in the in the real world in reality, but at the same time, really takes it to another space, exaggerates it almost. And I think that's part of what I was interested in, in the way that these rituals in some ways are about exaggeration of actual life um, and the ways in which that sort of heightened emotional state can feed into this creation of identity, which is, I think, the large one of the larger themes of, of this project. Exaggerated is a good word, because I think there's a lot of exaggerated in, I think, a lot of your work, but probably especially this one. And one of the things, one of the, the elements that is exaggerated in the founding of the world is the way people move and move in sync or in response to other people across the installation. I'm going to use two words that I don't think you use in talking about your work, so forgive me. But your work often features choreographed movement. It, you know, it's obvious as we're watching a film that there is a, you know, that you are the hand of God. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't think you call that choreographed movement choreographed, and I don't think you quite call it as being dance. I, I think I've read you use the word dance-like before, and it's certainly that. This is all a very long way of tiptoeing around before asking, why do you like to choreograph movement? So I, I definitely use choreography, that word. In, in, in the descriptions of my work. I mean, I work with a choreographer. She is credited for um, wow. a number of the performances that you see in the founding of the world. It's, it's not my hand, but you know, it's hers is, is, is the one that's sort of making the, these bodies move and sync. Multiple um, gods at work then. <laughs> exactly. I try to avoid the word dance. I don't think what I do is dance. I mean, it might be dance-like, but it's really coming from a very different place. I think movement is probably a, a, a better description, but certainly there is choreography at work. What I specifically am interested in, in, in using choreography for for the founding of the world was a way to kind of, you know, I was certainly inspired by, again, the research, my, my research into these fraternities and, and their use of choreography in, in their own practices, certainly in the probate, there's a lot of choreography. They're very, very stylized. Sometimes they feel like music videos. In fact, I, I imagine a lot of them, a lot of these movements and things come from from music videos in that world and that language. And so, I think the choreography is meant to kind of reference that, but also thinking about perhaps more importantly, bodies in sync and the ways in which group identity can be created through through these kinds of highly stylized and choreographed movements, the ways in which, yeah, the body itself is acted upon and, and made to reflect, let's say, a set of group values, again, group identity, but also as a way of, of, of navigating perhaps more larger, more complex conversations about what it means to be, you know, Asian American or what it means to be joining a, a group that primarily identifies itself through its Asian American identity. I and mean, that's one of the questions that I ask 
in this project is what does that term even mean, especially in the context of a fraternity? How is that, how is that identity even sort of practiced? And can they even agree on, on something on, on a set of terms that yeah can't be shared? There's so many different ways of, of understanding that particular identity. It's so, so broad. What particular aspects of Asian, Asian American-ness are they actually interested in? And I think one way that they try to figure that out is through, through movement, you know, obviously in a very abstract way. So that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in, in highlighting movement, because I think in this particular instance, movement does become a way of, of generating bonds of intimacy, but also other things that are perhaps darker things that sort of is a subtext for, for some of these organizations. One of the work's ways into or hinting at or referencing potentially darker things is the way across the founding of the world, you use masks, like literal masks that cover faces or parts of faces and heads. Was your interest in using masks here because they're part of the rituals you're interrogating, because masks make for a great metaphor? Or, or a great series of metaphors, or have a great metaphorical potentiality, or other reasons altogether. I think I think both those are part of why I chose to use them. They were definitely used by actual fraternity members as part of this ritual. I mean, that's that is actually like one of the most visually um, consistent things that I saw them them using, both for its highly symbolic qualities, but also I think. Because for these guys, they, they look cool. You know, again, like exploiting the theatricality of of what a mask can do, and and how this performance can lend a certain larger than life character to these individuals, right? It, almost transforming them from these average young men, you know, young college students, into something else, something more significant. Which I think is part of this search for identity, trying to you know create meaning for oneself at a stage in their life that it might be very confusing or they're unsure of what their identity is. And so the masks become this very convenient kind of visual element that I use and you certainly pick up on. And in, in the founding of the world, the mask that I have a number of my performers wearing is this black and white Rorschach mask, Rorschach from The Watchmen, the comic book, The Watchmen. Even if you're totally unfamiliar with that comic and its its origins, I think that mask still brings a kind of threatening, menacing, certainly strange element to the video. Let me the, jump in really quick. That mask is not skin tight across your performers' faces, but it's tight enough that we can see facial movements underneath it. And so when you say menacing, I think that's what you're... It's also the the the, the pattern yeah. on the mask itself. So it's a, yeah. it's a white balaclava, I guess, with black abstract markings that are similar to that of a Rorschach test. And you probably don't notice it in the video. It's very very subtle, but this mask actually responds to your breath, so it, it turns black when there's, I guess, carbon dioxide being emitted. I didn't anyway, wonder about that. You can <laughs> see it. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So that was like because that's. In, in the actual comic book Rorschach character's mask, it constantly shifts. It's not a stable pattern, but a constantly moving one. But anyway, it is it is in the video. It's in these actual masks themselves. But these are masks that I found some some of these fraternity members were, were using in in their own practices. And I I don't think that they were necessarily thinking about the sort of the, the darker undertones 
of, of what that mask, that character represents. Because in the comic books, Rorschach is a kind of fascist. He only sees, you know, he, 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 his worldview is very black and white, you know, represented in the mask. And he has no, no tolerance for, uh, he uses violence in, in a very sort of utilitarian way, I guess. And so when I first saw that on YouTube, I was just kind of shocked that these young men were so, not to say that they should have known what the, the origins of that costume was, but just the ways in which it, it presented such a kind of frightening, I don't know, character to the world. When in reality, you know, if these young men were just very sort of, you know, average individuals that, you know, they joined this fraternity to kind of like create bonds of, of brotherhood. But also, again, something about exploring Asian American identity. And, and where does Rorschach fit into that? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think it necessarily does in any obvious way. But I think that's where that's where the, the more menacing, perhaps violent aspects of these kinds of groups starts to make its way felt. You know, I think I, I think for at least for for most Americans, if you talk about fraternities, certain images come to mind. One of them being, you know, excessive bad behavior, let's say. And not to say that these groups that I was researching practice in that exclusively, but things like the mask and other parts of their costumes definitely take us to that space. And so I was really interested in why these groups were, were adopting these kinds of this kind of visual language for themselves. And I use that in, in my video and try to complicate it. I want to be sure to talk about Silent Spikes as well, especially because I'm a history nerd. Silent Spikes, which addresses most maybe specifically the construction of the Central Pacific Railroad by often Chinese laborers. And it got me thinking how in the U.S. for literally hundreds of years, going back to really the British colonial period, the construction of masculinity has very often been related to imperial westward expansion. One could probably argue that in the U.S., Western movement has always been constructed as masculine and that moving east, whether from Asia to the Pacific coast or from California back to New York or Philadelphia or wherever, especially in the 19th century, was was not. You know, Californians who moved back east in like the 1870s or 1880s during the Gilded Age were often kind of considered not willing to stick it out in California. They'd gone soft, Right. And you, you see that across the archive, even though it's completely ridiculous. Californians were going soft left and right as gold got converted into greenbacks, right? So in Silent Spikes, which is a 20-minute two-channel video, these dichotomies collide, especially at a site of railroad tunnels that is prominent in American art. They were known at the time as the sheds, tunnels built by the Central Pacific Railroad using dynamite, which was new at the time in, in construction in the United States dynamite to get through Sierra Granite. And these, these sheds ran across kind of a big curving area above what we what they did then, we now call Donner Lake. And, and that's a site, including the sheds that are prominent in the work of Carlton Watkins, Albert Bierstadt, William Keith, lots and lots of artists. They all show the, the, the sheds, the tunnels from above, sometimes looking head on. You do something else. Why tunnels? Why did tunnels interest you? Because tunnels, tunnels work in a lot of ways. <laughs> they, they certainly do. I think for me that the tunnel was, you know, literally the entry into this history, thinking about certainly all the things you just mentioned, ideas about labor, migrant labor, but also, you know, the tunnel for me represented 
the invisibility of all that, right? The ways in which this history gets talked about, but is often sort of marginalized. Certain these these individuals were marginalized even as they were building this. And the ways in which, yeah, the tunnel is giant negation into into the earth, a large void where, you know, people literally lost their lives and things disappeared, but also became this sort of absence in, in history and in memory. And I thought that was really compelling. When I did a when I first did a site visit to one of these tunnels and just kind of stepped in there, you know, I, I also couldn't help making comparisons to, to various pieces of land art that I've been to, like double negative, let's say. And you know, they're not, they're certainly not the same thing. They, they have very, very different contexts, but I, I couldn't help but think about these other attempts to kind of create voids in the landscape and what those things mean and, you know, what gets remembered. And certainly these tunnels, which now are no longer used by the railroad, they're, they're basically these kind of open, openly accessible, I, I wouldn't call it a public park, but just like a, a kind of a natural site that people can visit. They are these interesting monuments to something you know, aside from a very a couple of, of of wall panels or didactic panels at the site, you you know you wouldn't really know what this history was if you just stumbled upon it. And so it had this really compelling physical presence, but through its absence, right through this kind of giant negation into the earth. And so I thought that was like really kind of apt way of thinking about the history of these people that were there and that you know have been lost to history for the most part. They. They left no written traces of their experiences, despite the fact that there are thousands of these men here. There are a number of theories as to why that's the case. But for the most part, the only things we do understand about them is is from the sort of the white perspective, the, the people who ran the railroad and hired them, you know, Leland, St- well, not Stanford himself, but people that worked under him, like Charles Crocker. And yeah, so, and, and now there's, you know, definitely attempts to kind of excavate this history, but the way I bring it into my video is is somewhat fictional. There's definitely it definitely references real things that happened, but at the same time, I try not to avoid these gaps, and I, I really try to highlight these gaps because I think that's really important, not necessarily to, to, to honor these people, but to kind of realize that so much of of history, at least within this country, is a, is is about these absences, and I think merely trying to uh, fill in these absences is, is 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 not doing. It's not the right approach. One of the questions I had was how do I how can I make absence felt? And so that's one of the things I try to do with this video, amongst a number of different kinds of themes that you know overlap. Are you interested in using the tunnel as both an actual and metaphorical site where masculinity was and was not constructed? I mean, for example, the European American capitalist class in California was not interested in recognizing masculinity in non-European Americans. But I guess one reason I'm also asking is because, you know, anybody who's traveled around the U.S. knows that there are 873 gay bars called The Tunnel. On, On the west side of New York for 15 or 20 years, there was a very famous gay bar called Tunnel, which everybody called The Tunnel, or at least I think it was called Tunnel and everybody called it The Tunnel. Oh, and in that bar in New York, what was so named because it looked like a tunnel? It was a big built structure with a half circle that ran through it. Is one of the things you're interested in here is the relationship between labor, class, and the construction of, of masculinity at a site such as the sheds above Donner Lake. Yeah, definitely. And also, I would throw in there um, the the ways in which 
the sensuous and perhaps even a, a kind of erotics might be at play within these kinds of spaces. I wouldn't necessarily say that like, or I don't even know necessarily how queerness might fit into these migrant laborers' lives. You know, there's just so little evidence about them indiv as individuals. But, you know, as part of Silent Spice, within this uh, semi-fictional voiceover that you hear, the voice speaks from the position of, well, you can assume that this is a sort of like a ghostly uh, presence. And he speaks about this experience in the past tense. And he talks about missing this sensation of being with his, these other men, these countrymen, these other laborers. And while he never explicitly identifies himself as queer, I think there is a kind of physicality to that experience that makes its way into that narrative that so often gets overlooked. And so throughout Town Spike's movement and, and, and a certain kind of choreography also makes its way into, into the work. And I really wanted to to highlight the kinds of the ways in which, again, the, the body played a role within all these sort of overlapping ideas, not just to kind of articulate masculinity, which is which is certainly there, but, you know, something more abstract, less about identifying a particular set of practices and more just about what it meant to be in there at all and, and be pressed up against all these other men and the ways in which the erotic component could open up different ways of thinking about, about oneself, even beyond strict sort of gender identifications. And so using the tunnel and that experience and that history as a way to kind of, again, open up these, these, these questions. So on the one hand, it is about performance of masculinity, certainly in the scenes where my performers are dressed up as cowboys and adopt this sort of faux kind of Marlboro man aesthetic. But at the same time, trying to ask if there are other ways of, of thinking about these experiences, specifically through through the body in a, you know, in, in a very embodied way. And, and labor is certainly one component of that. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about something you said in conversation with Rael Christian in Art Papers a while back. You said, quote, I think American culture is really good at, at that, at, at ignoring the past. The one thing we sort of excel at is the simultaneous experience of annihilation of history in service of, I don't know, in service of just moving on and continu continuing this fiction that we tell of ourselves. You know, certainly within that idea is, is an interest in memory studies and, and how we construct memories often by pretending pasts don't exist or willfully avoiding them. And, and your work deals with this idea a lot, including in the work we were just discussing, Silent Spikes. Why is art, and maybe especially film or video installation, a good way of addressing that willful forgetfulness? <laughs> Certainly with, with moving image art, projected images, there's already a relationship between, between that and, and memory. Images are a great way of interrogating uh, the past, but also, I don't know, finding, finding ways of of making material things that no longer exist. I think artists are constantly engaged with that activity. But in terms of, of, of history itself, I don't know. I think I think in general, just artists are, are, are good at asking questions and they're willing to, at least with Science Spice, you know, my, my approach, my interest in this work was not purely academic. Right? It was not purely just about how do I give form to something that happened in the past. Rather, it was to kind of also speculate and I kind of use my own you know, imagination and subjectivity to manifest the past in a way that perhaps we don't actually think about and to 
certainly make connections between the past and the present. And, and that was for me the interest in the tunnel too. I, you know, in, in, again, in the video, there's as part of that voiceover, this, the narrator is like trapped in the tunnel and he, the tunnel becomes a way of moving through time. And I think that artists are, are constantly interested in not only excavating the past, but seeing how that brings meaning into the present and certainly into the future as well. And the fact that we are not trained historians, you know, and, and all the sort of the biases, let's say, of that field of knowledge, we were able to kind of fabulate and to kind of make connections and, and perhaps see history as just one element of, of, of sort of making sense of the present. And, you know, we're, <laughs> the present is such a mess. And, you know, how do we how do we understand how we get here? You know, and, and certainly understanding History is one way of doing that, but it's certainly not the only way of dealing with the urgencies of, of, of the present. Kenneth Tam, thank you. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.